Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to pick up in verse 24 and go to the end of the chapter. It says, you shall speak to Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, you have sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem, to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented and considers himself a prophet that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now, therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you? For he is sent to us in Babylon saying this captivity is long build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Now Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying send to all those in captivity saying thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite because Shemaiah has prophesied to you and I have not sent him and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nehelamite and his family. He shall not have anyone to dwell among this people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. Remember, in the book of Jeremiah, and particularly in this 29th chapter, there's been a series of letters that have been given. Nebuchadnezzar has come and he has captured the city and taken the first waves of captives to Babylon. In the first letter in chapter 29, Jeremiah encourages the captives to make the most of their circumstances. Because the bondage in the captivity is going to be for a very long time, he encourages them to try to turn tragedy into triumph. And in order to turn tragedy into triumph, it would mean that you would have to trust God, not only in the present, but also for the future. And so Jeremiah encourages the people to settle down, to build houses, to make a life, to seek peace and prosperity in the new circumstances that they find themselves in, and then to pray for their captors. As a matter of fact, look back in chapter 29 at verse 13, and I want you to reread verse 13 where it says this bit of encouragement, and you shall seek me and find me. When you search for me with all of your heart, God's word remains the same for us. The same admonition that Jeremiah gave to those captives for that person who finds themselves in a position where they they feel distant from God, that they've lost touch with God. You pray and you cry out to God and you go, Lord, where are you? Well, Here's the word of the Lord that Jeremiah gives to those captives. And here's the word that the Lord gives to you. And that is. The Lord's available to you. 
The Lord is available to you. The Lord longs for his people to look to him and live. The overarching message of the scripture is that his arms are open in loving invitation to all those who will turn from their sin and turn to him. But it's also true that a diligent search is required. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. You know, the reoccurring theme in the Bible is there's guidance. There's instruction that's available. I need you to understand something. You don't have to beg God to guide you. You don't have to beg God to reveal his will to you. I'm here to tell you something. God wants to lead you and he wants to guide you and he wants to reveal his will to you. Remember that the second letter began in verse 15. It was a warning to guard against false prophets who were deceiving and who were themselves deceived. Jeremiah singles out two leaders for special condemnation named Ahab and Zedekiah in verse 21. And their names would become a proverb and a curse. These two prophets were guilty of gross sin, including adultery and preaching that the captives would soon return to the land. But the prophets rejected God's word and God's judgment. That is these false prophets and the false prophets take on the same modus operandi as every false prophet. A false prophet isn't just content to tell you something that's false. Typically, not only are their words wrong, but their life is wrong. And so the condemnation is about to be made. And in verse 24, this is the third letter. And the third letter is a response by the false prophet Shemaiah to Zephaniah. So, <laughs> Jeremiah has written some notes. And now this bitter and bleak blog comes from Babylon. The letter becomes a type and a picture of the false prophet condemning Jeremiah, and so it becomes a picture of persecution. In verse 24, look what it says. You shall also speak to Shemaiah the Nehelamite, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah is going to confront Shemaiah the false prophet. By the way, the name Shemaiah, it appears some 27 times in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful name. In the Hebrew language... It means the Lord has heard. Just because you're a false prophet doesn't mean you can't have a cool name. And when you have a cool name and an optimistic message, it often captures people's attention. In verse 25, it says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, you have sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem. In other words, Shemaiah, the false prophet, had sent more than one communique from Babylon back to Jerusalem to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests. And then he's going to give the note in just a moment. The false prophet has sent correspondence in his own name. And here's part of the point. It's under his own initiative. 
In other words, the word hasn't been prompted by God, but it has come from the false prophet. Zephaniah occupies the office once held by Pazur. And for those of you who have been following along in our study in the book of Jeremiah, Pazur is the guy in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, who basically arrested Jeremiah and put him in stocks. And so this is the guy who has taken over Pazur's position he is the guy who is sort of like the chief of police. It's his job to isolate, incarcerate the troublemakers. And in verse 26, it says, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest, so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented. And considers himself a prophet that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. In other words, the false prophet Shemaiah is rebuking and chastising Zephaniah. The false prophet declares that God has made Zephaniah the new high priest in Jerusalem. Jehoiada has lost his job. And the letter accuses Jeremiah of being a madman. That's what that word demented means. A false prophet who deserves to be arrested and imprisoned. So here's the accusation. This prophet says, Jeremiah, you're crazy, you're nuts, you should be in jail. And let me tell you why I think this is interesting. Shemaiah, the false prophet, accuses Jeremiah, the true prophet, of being one or out of the water with his threads Stripped that he's not all there. He's not firing on all cylinders. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Why does the false prophet Shemaiah accuse Jeremiah of being crazy? It's because of Jeremiah's message. Remember what Jeremiah's message is. God's judging us. This captivity has come about because God is disciplining us and judging us. And remember Jeremiah's message. We're going to be here for a while. This is going to take some time. And Shemaiah doesn't like that message. You see, Shemaiah has given a different message. Jeremiah says the captivity is going to be long-lived. Shemaiah says the captivity is going to be short-lived. Today... We judge a person's sanity on the basis of their connection to reality. We deem a person mentally ill in direct proportion to their disconnect from reality. I need to ask you a question. Do you think that Jeremiah is sane or insane in the membrane? He's sane. He's the very definition of sanity. If sanity means having a right relationship with reality, here is the reality. The people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem have denied, disobeyed, and rebelled against God. Jeremiah comes on the scene and he says, look, if ever there was a time for you to get right with God, it's now. If ever there was a time for you to listen to the message of God, it's now. If ever there was a time for you to submit to the discipline of God, it's now. And this becomes important because modern skeptics and agnostics believe that Christians are afflicted with some kind of mental illness. 
Remember, Marx accused religion of being the opiate of the masses. It was both Karl Marx and even Sigmund Freud who accused people who had this preoccupation with God of being disconnected from reality. There are some people, there are some people who believe that I'm crazy. And I know what some of you are thinking. They're, they're right. A little bit right. You know, it's one thing to accuse me of insanity and mental illness, but it's another thing to accuse you. Do you realize that there are people who think that you're mentally ill because you believe that the Bible is true? That you're mentally ill because you believe that there's a God in heaven? They think that you're mentally ill because you talk to an invisible God that you can't see and you believe in promises that were written over thousands of years. They think that you're nuts and they think that you're crazy. Why would anyone in their right mind go to church on Wednesday? Why would anyone in their right mind actually get up in the morning and read their Bible? Why would anyone in their right mind teach their children that there's a God who loves them and cares about them? <laughs> this is why he accuses Jeremiah of being crazy. It's because of his message. And there's a real reason why people will accuse me and accuse you of being nuts. And it's because of your message. It's the message that there's a God who loves you and there's a God who cares and that sin is a real problem and Jesus is the solution to sin. And so in verse 27, look what it says. Now, therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you? Why haven't you shut him up? Why haven't you confronted him? In effect, the priest Zephaniah is accused of being way too lenient with Jeremiah. Remember, Pasher, his, his predecessor, when the political pressure was put upon him, he had Jeremiah locked up and thrown in prison. Do we live in a world, in a, in a country, where governments will succumb and collapse if enough citizens pressure them? Could there come a time... When people will say, you need to make him shut up. You need to silence him. You see, not every message that's an optimistic message is a message from God. Because the optimistic message is, guess what? It's going to be a brighter morning. It's going to be a better day. Oddly enough, the false prophet Shemaiah was singing the song, the sun is going to come out tomorrow. There's got to be a better tomorrow. The message is filled with hope. But it's a false hope. And so, in verse 28, he says, for he has sent us, he has sent to us in Babylon. And here's the message. Here's what, he, here's what Jeremiah has written to us. This captivity is long. Build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit. In other words, Jeremiah's message is the captivity is going to take a while, so get used to it. The prophet Jeremiah is charged with crimes against his country. Jeremiah is charged with teaching and preaching a negative, false message of hopelessness that the captives should settle down and make the best of it in Babylon. Can you believe it? <laughs> Jeremiah is accused of making a negative confession. Don't say that. 
Don't speak that. Those are negative words. Those are those can't be right words. Those can't be true words. In effect, the prophet is instructing the priest. Jeremiah has to be silenced. We have to keep him quiet. He's undermining the morale of the captives in Babylon. So here's Jeremiah. He's being charged with teaching a negative message, a false message of hopelessness. How in the world could he be so bold as to suggest that the captives should settle down in pagan Babylon and try to make the best of their miserable circumstances? And in verse 29, look what it says. Now, Zephaniah, the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah, the prophet. The priest Zephaniah is reading the letter to Jeremiah. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because I want you to be able to ask questions of the text. Why doesn't Zephaniah just say, Shemaiah's right. Jeremiah's teaching a radical message of hopelessness. He's undermining the confidence and the morale of the captives in Babylon. Why doesn't he just grab him, arrest him, and throw him in the pit? I'm going to suggest something to you. A couple of things might be happening. It could be that Zephaniah is sympathetic to the message of Jeremiah. And he's just giving him a heads up. That's a possibility. Another possibility might be that he's trying to bully him and intimidate him. That he doesn't want to arrest him and he doesn't want to incarcerate him, but he wants to scare him into keeping silent. And usually persecution will take one of those two methods. Someone will speak to you and they'll say, why don't you just shut up? Why do you keep talking about God and why do you keep talking about Jesus? Don't you understand? Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear about the Bible and nobody wants to hear about Jesus. Nobody wants to hear about that you're a sinner and nobody wants to hear that you need a savior. I have a call on my radio program today from a person whose brother was castigating Tim Tebow for praying in public. He quotes Matthew's gospel and implies that a public prayer is prohibited in the Bible. By the way, is praying publicly prohibited in the Bible? No. But are there people who believe that the world would be a better place if Christians would just keep their mouth shut? If Christians wouldn't pray openly? If Christians wouldn't... There are people who are actually upset with you if you bring a Bible to school. They're upset with you if you declare openly and publicly that you love the Lord. So what's happening? Is he sympathetic to Jeremiah's message? Is he trying to bully and intimidate Jeremiah? We're not going to find that out until a little bit later. Look what it says in verse 30, the third letter to the exiles. Jeremiah is going to respond with yet a new note. This is a new letter that he'll send. In verse 30, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Now Jeremiah writes a third letter to the captives in Babylon. In short, he's informing the people in captivity that one of them is telling the truth and another one is lying. One has a true message and one has a false message. 
Shemaiah and his family are going to be judged for his lying and his wickedness. And so in verse 31, look what it says. Send to all those in captivity. In other words, write this down. Write this letter to the people who are in captivity saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Jeremiah warns the people that Shemaiah is a false prophet, that he's lying. The Lord hasn't sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. And there's clues that are given to us throughout the text. False prophets are self-appointed. False prophets are dangerous. False prophets cause people to believe lies. On my program (laughs) this afternoon, a lady called me about a friend who of hers who happens to be a Jehovah's Witness. And she talked about the conversations that she's having with her Jehovah's Witness friend. And by the way, it's not wrong for you to have conversations with your Mormon friends and with your Jehovah's Witness friends and and with the people who, who don't understand or embrace the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. But she asked me about What's the difference between being a Jehovah's Witness and a person who embraces historical biblical Christianity? And I had to tell her that the Jehovah's Witnesses have a different Jesus and they have a different gospel and they have a different method of salvation. And so if you have a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different salvation, do you think that that's okay, Or is it dangerous? Imagine you had a bottle and it had a skull and crossbones on it. And someone told you that the skull and crossbones, that means medicine. And that if you drink it, you'll get well. And you go, wait a minute, time out. The skull and crossbones doesn't mean medicine. It means poison. It means don't drink it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, there's something... In us, because we live in a polite society. And and I'm all for politeness, and I'm all for civility, and I'm all for being sensitive and gracious and kind and long-suffering. But at some point, someone has to point out that false prophets are self-appointed, and false prophets are dangerous, and false prophets cause people to believe lies. And that there's a terrible, horrible consequence when you believe a lie. So what was the big lie? In this particular instance, I want you to think about the context of the passage that you're reading. Zedekiah is still on the throne. The Jews are still living in Jerusalem. There are captives. The false prophets reminding the people, look, so long as there's a Jewish king on the throne, and so long as there are Jewish people in Jerusalem, and so long as... There's a Jewish king and there's Jewish people in Jerusalem. Then there's hope. The false prophet reminded the people, so long as there's a Jewish king on the throne, so long as there's Jewish Jewish people in the city, that we should hold out and hold out hope that this is only a temporary problem. But remember what God has called them. Bad figs. I'm being kind now. 
Actually, God called them rotten fruit that needed to be tossed. Bad figs actually sounds like a compliment compared to what the text actually says. Once again, the false prophet and the people missed the point of the message. The important thing wasn't what happened to the people who remained in the land, the people who were in Jerusalem and the people who were in Judea, but rather what was happening with the exiles in Babylon. And I need you to see this through because the exiles in Babylon are going to form the seed of the people who are going to return to the land and rebuild the temple and provide a mechanism so that the plans and purposes and the prophecies of God can be fulfilled. The important thing was that the people needed to listen to the prophet of God and the word of God with the promise of God so that they wouldn't have false hope, but real hope. If the people believed the word of God and if the people obeyed the word of God, then the purposes of God would be fulfilled in their life and the plans and the purposes would come to pass. In this case, the lie included that the people in captivity would soon return to the land. But why is that such a terrible lie to hold out hope that you're going to come home soon? This is why it was a terrible lie, because God was going to bring them to a place of brokenness and to a place of humility and to a place of submission and to a place of dependence upon him. So why is that important to you? Because sometimes we want to make broken things right. Sometimes we want to fix things and we want to fix them according to our own plans and our own purposes. And we have no idea that God has a plan and a purpose because he's trying to work inside of an individual's heart. He's trying to bring the person to a place of brokenness and humility and dependence so that they will cry out to God and really want what's best. In this case, the false prophet doesn't teach the whole counsel of God. In this case, the false prophet asks the people to focus on the blessing and to focus on the promise. And you might think, well, what's wrong with focusing on the blessing and what's wrong with focusing on the on the promise? Here's the problem. Because part of. Of the blessing and part of the promise was going to take place as hard as this may be for some of you to believe it's going to take place in the context of a prolonged discipline that is going to result in God's plans and purposes coming to pass. And when you only believe part of the promise and not all of the promise. It will have a tragic and toxic effect on the people. The people came to the false conclusion that since they were going to get to leave at any time, they could live however they wished and they could ignore God's word and they could ignore God's promise and they could ignore God's commandments. And sometimes we have that same fatal way of thinking. 
well, you know, since you're, you're saved and, and since uh, Jesus is Lord and since you're going to be forgiven anyway, it doesn't matter if you enter into that toxic relationship. It doesn't matter if you continue in that sin. It doesn't matter if you decide to live your life not in complete holiness and dependence upon God, because in the end, it's all going to work out anyway. But make no mistake about it. Sin always has terrible consequences. Remember, Paul writes in the book of Romans, should we sin so that grace can abound? Remember the argument that was being made? Hey, if we're saved by grace and we're kept by by grace, then it doesn't really matter what we we do. We're free to do whatever we want. We can watch what we want and we can do what we want and it doesn't matter. But the truth is, the way of the transgressor is hard. And remember, God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they reap. And for this reason, judgment would come swiftly on the false prophet. So who do you trust? What do you trust? Where will you go to get information that you can trust? And look at what it says in verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, and his family. He shall not have anyone to dwell among his people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. You know what some people are saying? What do you mean he's taught rebellion? What he's doing is he's trying to hold out hope and optimism. How is hope and optimism rebellion? Because it's not hope and optimism when you contradict and, and defy and rebel against the word of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God. So when the Bible says something and then somebody else says exactly the opposite... Is it possible that a person can be motivated by what they perceive to be a good thing, but the Bible calls it rebellion? And and by the way, the Bible says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And let's be very clear what we mean by rebellion. Rebellion means that when God says something, you say, he didn't really say that. Rebellion is when God says yes and you say no. Rebellion is when God says no and you say yes. Rebellion is when God says wait and you say I can't wait. Rebellion is when God says grace and you say works. Rebellion is when God says Pain, and you say pleasure. And that becomes part of the point. The Lord promises punishment for Shemaiah and his family. And by the way, the punishment was what every Jew was most concerned about. And that is that there would be no future. That they would have no family and they would have no future. Remember in the Jewish culture and society... That the transaction and the transmission of property and wealth went from family member 
to family member. And the punishment for Shemaiah will include no survivors, no descendants to see the promise of God fulfilled. So here's the Lord's charge. Shemaiah preached rebellion against God's word. And you see, sometimes we're way too tolerable towards false prophets. People will say, well, you know, why are you why are you so down on Charles Taze Russell? And why are you so down on Joseph Smith? And why are you so down on Mary Baker Glover Eddy? Why are you so down on these people? And, and the reality is I'm not down on these people, but I am down on the person who tells you the opposite of what the Bible says. There, there are going to be people in your life who are going to say, the Bible's not true. But the Bible says that the word of God is true and trustworthy and reliable. There will be people who will tell you that Jesus isn't Lord and that salvation isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In an age of tolerance and acceptance, we are shocked to discover that God's word takes a stand on things that matter. So people will call me on my radio program and they'll tell me about their homosexual daughter or their homosexual parent or their homosexual friend. They'll tell me the sordid tale of of abuse and difficulty. And then they'll ask me, is homosexual behavior wrong? And what do you suppose I'm obligated to say? That it is wrong. But I'm also obligated to say there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. We have a savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus was sent in the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The message can't just simply stop that lying is wrong and cheating is wrong and stealing is wrong and adultery is wrong. There has to be the other part of the message. That there is forgiveness and hope for people who do wrong. There will be people who will call me and they'll say, doesn't God love divorce? No, God hates divorce because he knows what it does to a family and he knows what it does to a heart and he knows what it does to a family. When false prophets give a false word and false hope, they teach rebellion against the Lord. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that God is in heaven going, I'm good with that. That's okay. I'm fine with that. In the New Testament, the pastor's job is several fold. The pastor administers the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, according to Matthew chapter 28. A pastor is supposed to be a man of prayer in 1 Timothy 2.1. The pastor's job includes warning the flock in 1 Timothy chapter 4, studying God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 2, preaching God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse or chapter 4 verse 2. So the the pastor's job is to guide the flock and the pastor's job is to guard the flock. The pastor's job is to exhort and rebuke it says with all long suffering in 1 Thessalonians 5:12 and Titus 2:15. The pastor's job is to guide and guard and to watch over your soul. But do you realize that the pastor's job is also to watch over his own soul? 
and to be an example. The pastor has to guide and the pastor has to guard and the pastor has to feed and the pastor has to warn. But the pastor also has a responsibility to live a life that is honoring to God and pleasing to God in the service of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the writer of Hebrews issues a warning to those who are wavering in their commitment to Christ. There were Jews who wanted to return to Judaism and to the sacrificial system. Some wanted the old-time religion, and they wanted an old-time religion that didn't include Jesus as their Messiah, and Jesus as the sacrifice, and Jesus as their Lord. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, what does that mean? What is the willful sin being referenced? I'm going to suggest to you it, it isn't a reference to the fact that if a Christian sins, it's all over. I'm going to suggest to you that in the context, it means apostasy. It's a turning from the gospel. It's a rejection of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a return to the sacrificial system of Judaism. The writer is making a contrast with people who want to go to heaven and they want to have a right relationship with God, but they don't want to be involved with Jesus at all. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, it says, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. In verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace if Shemaiah and his entire family and all of their future is cut off because he denies the word of God and rejects the word of God and rebels against the word of God how much more worse do you think it's going to be for the person who says the Bible's not true and Jesus Christ is not Lord and his death doesn't matter his sacrifice it means nothing the right answer, his life, his love, his sacrifice, his resurrection means everything. If Jesus Christ isn't Lord, then guess what? You're still in your sin. If Jesus Christ did not die on the cross and rise from the dead, then that means that whatever punishment you deserve, it still rests upon you because Jesus Christ isn't really the Lord. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the reason why I'm bringing this up to you is because the false prophet for whatever reason, the self-appointed prophet, the self-described prophet, the prophet who speaks words that aren't words of God. For some reason, it completely slips his or her mind 
that God is weighing each word carefully, each statement carefully, each conclusion carefully. There's a reason why James, the brother of Jesus, said, don't be many teachers among you, knowing that you will incur the stricter judgment. I am aware. I am constantly aware. That every word that I speak to you. And everything that I say to you. I'm going to be held accountable to God. For every word. Every sentence. You see, not only am I responsible for my own soul, I'm responsible for your soul. And one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account of each and everything that I've ever said to you. And the Lord is going to ask me what I did to prepare your soul to meet him. Did I leave you with the false idea that he hates you instead of loves you? No, he loves you and doesn't hate you. God is looking for a way not to confine you, but to deliver you. Remember what I said earlier in the passage? Remember when you look earlier in chapter 29, it says in verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you in the 29th chapter, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Here's the promise that God gives. I'm open. I'm open and available to you. We live in a world that rejects God and rejects his word. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet wrote in Isaiah 13, 11, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, this is what it says. I'm not making it up. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. People ask me all kinds of questions about that verse. They ask me about the lake of fire. They ask me if it's eternal. They ask me all kinds of different questions. They rarely ask me the most important question that you could ever ask. When it says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life, it seems to me that the most important question you can ask of Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, is how can I make sure my name is written in that book? You laugh, but think about that for just a moment. If the statement is true, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, you would think that you would cross the ocean. You would sell everything that you have. That you would beg. You would spend every moment of every day trying to figure out what the answer to the question is. How can I make sure my name is written in the book of life? The good news? The answer is so simple. that You don't have to sell your home and you don't have to give up your job and you don't have to cross the ocean. The way that you make sure that your name is written in that book of life is that you embrace the word of life. 
and the son of life. The Bible says that in Jesus there is life everlasting. In John 17, 3, when Jesus is praying, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is in the Son, it says in 1 John chapter 5. The Bible says, if you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. So how do you get Jesus? You recognize that his life and his love and his sacrifice and his death on the cross is the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, what life does to us depends largely on what life finds in us. If we seek the Lord and want his best, then circumstances will build us and prepare us for what he has planned. If we rebel or if we look for quick and easy shortcuts, then circumstances will destroy us and rob us of the future that God wants us to enjoy. The same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay, God's thoughts and plans concerning us come from his heart and lead to his peace. Why would you look for substitutes? Why would you look for life anywhere else? You know, in the last four chapters, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, chapter 29, there's been three large themes. The theme of truth. Over and over again, Jeremiah confronts us and says, what's the truth? And here's what we know. What God says is true. What the false prophet says is not true. That's the theme. In the last four chapters, we've been asked, who is the true spokesman for God? In each instance, the answer has been, Jeremiah. But it's a hard message. It is a hard message. But it's a true message. It's not an optimistic message. It all depends on how you define optimism. It's not a hopeful message. It depends. What do you really like? False hope or true hope? The next big theme is that a powerful, feel-good, optimistic message isn't always God's message. When a person says, this could be your best life ever. And you say, okay, and what's the rest of the message? No, that's it. That's my message. That's it. No turning from sin, no repenting, no turning to Jesus. No, that's, you can have your best life now. By ignoring God, by ignoring his word, by ignoring your sin. There's something, there's something inside of us that wants to see the bright side. And make no mistake about it, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to have hope. And it's not wrong to need hope. But we don't need a false hope. And let me just be as blunt as I possibly can. 
Hope is found in God's will. And hope is found in God's word. But sometimes optimism is blinded to God's will and God's word. And by the way, when a person is optimistic at the expense of the revelation of God, then that should cause you to pause and say, real hope is found in the word of God and the promise of God and the person of God. And number three... It is easy to doubt whether our message is a true message and God's message when there are two different people saying exactly the opposite. Jeremiah says, I'm hearing from God. Shemaiah says, I'm hearing from God. Jeremiah says, the captivity is going to be a long time. Shemaiah says, the captivity is going to be a short time. Well, they're both prophets, right? Yeah. One's a true prophet and one's a false prophet. So how do you know? How do you know that your message is really God's message? How do you know that? Would it shock you and surprise you if I told you, if your message is the message that's contained in this book then you're, that's good. That's a good start. If the message is the overarching message of this book, that God loves you, that sin is a problem, and that Jesus Christ is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, then you know you're on track. In the book of Joshua, the Lord speaks to Joshua in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. It says, The Lord spoke concerning his plan for victory over Jericho. And many of you know the story. The Lord gives the plans for victory. In short, Joshua sees this guy. And the guy has a drawn sword in his hand. And when he asks about the man's identity, the man says, I'm the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua's response, he falls on his face. And he says, what saith my Lord unto his servant? Do you want to know if your message is really God's message? Make sure that you're ready to do what Joshua was ready to do. To listen to the word of the Lord. How do you know that your message is the message of God? It has to come from the mouth of God. And it has to come from the heart of God. Joshua was willing to learn The word of God, and then he was willing to learn the will of God, and then he was willing to love the way of the Lord. And it sounds so simple. Joshua was willing to live the wishes of the Lord, and that created confidence, confidence to look for victory in the Lord. And I want you to just think about it for just a moment. Joshua did all that the Lord told him to do. And then he did it the way the Lord told him to do it. And when the armies marched around Jericho in the fashion that God prescribed in the seventh round on the seventh day, Joshua commands the priests to sound the trumpet. The people shout. And as they do, Joshua stands looking for victory. And the walls of Jericho came tumbling down and victory came. And it was glorious. How do you have victory? How do you understand the message? The principle is repeated over and over again. Listen to the word of God. 
Learn the will of God. Love the way of the Lord. Live his wishes. And then look for victory. Then look for victory. And I got to tell you something. When the walls fell down, it was glorious. And when you're listening to the word of the Lord and you're learning the will of the Lord and you're loving the way of the Lord and you're living his wishes. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. The walls will come down. The victory will come. You will know. Right from wrong. You will know. Good from evil. You will know the difference between the truth and a lie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we understand Jeremiah's deep, deep commitment to you. That Jeremiah was willing to listen to everything that you said and then to do all that you told him to do. And Jeremiah learned what it meant to love you and to love your wishes and to stand firm in the midst of adversity. Even when people were saying exactly the opposite of what you were saying, Lord. And Lord, I know that these men and women, they live in a world of constant bombardment from books, from TV, from family members and so-called friends who are trying to tell them that the Bible's not true and it can't be trusted and that there's got to be another way. But Lord, we know that there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And so we love you and we trust you. Lord, we pray that you'd fill our hearts with a burning passion to not just simply to know the truth or even to simply love the truth, but to live the truth with all of our might. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.